Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Skipper. Let's bow for prayer. God in heaven, this morning we are grateful and we're, we're certainly sobered by the, the great privilege to gather as your blessed people, a kingdom of priests called out from the world to represent you the way that you intended for all human beings to bear your image from the very beginning. Lord, that's a tremendous privilege, and it's a great responsibility. And so, Lord, as we examine your scriptures, we, uh, we pray that you would cause us to understand and to love and be drawn toward this duty and delight. And, Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Each of us carries with us scars or baggage into the gathering of the church family on Sunday mornings. I'm sure you know that. Some of you grew up in extreme poverty, and that shapes the way that you look at the world, doesn't it? Some of you uh, perhaps came from a life of addiction. And I pray that you're seeing glorious victory, but that past sin and the pathway that God has taken you on to, to lead you out of that sin is very much a part of your present. And there's nothing to be ashamed about with that. There's something wonderful about that. Others have suffered great evil at the hands of another person, like Joseph. Uh, and you're leaning into the fact that while they meant it for evil, God is wa uh, working all things together for your good. And you're fighting to, to walk by faith in, in spite of those sufferings. Well, for me and, and for many of you here, not to say that all these types of difficulty, all these elements of our past are the same. They are not the same. 
But for me and for many of you here, one of the scars, some of the baggage that you bring with you into the church comes from the church, right? Sad to say, the longer you're a Christian, the greater the likelihood that you have suffered because of a local church, because of the way it's structured, because of a leader in the church, because of a relationship in the church, because of a power differential in the church. And as I said, this has been the case for me. Some of what I bring into the, to the church today comes from my bad experiences in the church. I grew up in the Northeast, but I attended college in South Carolina. And, and during those years, obviously, uh, I only got bits and pieces of what was going on at my home church back in Pennsylvania. Uh, by necessity, I only got those snapshots here and there because I was gone for most of the year. And I remember coming back home and attending one particular member's meeting when I had just come home from school for a break. And it's almost burned into my memory because it was so shocking to me. We used to call them business meetings. And they took place once a month after the Sunday evening service. And on this particular day, a gentleman whom I had never met, and yes, this was a larger church, but I knew most of the people in my church, but a man that I had never met stood up to one of the microphones and he pulled out a piece of paper and he read a motion uh, in front of everyone. He called for a vote of confidence. I had never heard of that. I didn't know what that was. Uh, but I could tell that our pastor, who happened to be chairing the meeting, was very much in the hot seat. Most people, I imagine, were like me. We had no idea what was supposed to happen next. The pastor happened to be mostly deaf and hadn't heard what the man had said. That, believe it or not, was one of the reasons why people were frustrated with him. Some started shouting. Others lined up behind the microphone, situated in the center aisle. At the time, it seemed like an eternity, but I'm sure it would only lasted like one minute. Finally, a young man just a few years older than me, also home on break, uh, in his case from law school at the University of Pittsburgh, bounded nimbly up to the stage and asked to be given the floor. And by some miracle, everyone stopped and actually listened to what he had to say. And the young man, he explained that the motion was out of order, thankfully, <laughs> and would need to be handled following the correct parliamentary procedure. He had staved off the inevitable for just a few days because not long afterward, the pastor resigned, the church split. It was almost 20 years ago, but to me and to just about everybody there, and, and it's kind of silly to remember, it, but it's, for me, it's very not silly. Uh, for me, it feels like yesterday that this happened. And as a young ministerial student, it was truly traumatic. And if you think that that experience lies dormant in the past and doesn't affect my today, you're wrong. I bring that with me into my ministry. Now, thinking simplistically, we might conclude that something like this it has a very simple explanation. We might say something like, well, of course that thing, that sort of thing is going to happen in a congregational church. In a church that's governed congregationally, people fight over the color of the carpet, they split churches, they quarrel and slander the name of Christ with their belligerence. Why would you be a part of a congregationally governed church? Why would you put yourself through that? And many Christians reason in just this way. Uh, they form churches that reflect those concerns, churches in which the elders or an executive board or a regional synod or council make all the big decisions. But wait a second. Should we be so quick to throw congregationalism into the trash? And when I look at the pages of scripture, I'm led to say 
not so fast. Today, as I've said, is Family Sunday. And among other things, I see it as an opportunity to observe what the Bible says about the church, about the way that we operate as a church family. I often read that the way a church operates is a matter of Christian liberty. You just do what makes sense in your context. But as I read my Bible, I find that that's not often the case. There are many things that God's Word has to say about the way that we relate to each other and operate in the church. So briefly this morning, I I want to ask four questions. First of all, what is congregationalism? Second, is it biblical? Third, is it practical? And then finally, of course, so what? (laughs) So firstly, what is congregationalism? You say, Jake, that is a one, two, three, four, five, six, seven syllable word. Why are you bringing this word up, especially with my children here? Uh, What does it even mean? Simply put, congregationalism is a type of church governance in which under Christ, the gathered membership of the local church serve as its ultimate earthly authority. So all gospel preaching churches believe that Jesus is in charge of the local church. I hope you agree with that. The Bible is very clear on this point, so I'm just going to assume it for the sake of the argument. The church is his body. It's his bride. It's a building of which he is the foundation. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit. Christ is in charge of the local church. But underneath the authority of of Christ, there are various ways that churches are, are organized. Uh, an Episcopalian church, for example, has a hierarchy of bishops, and they oversee several congregations. A Presbyterian-type church, they have a council of elders, and they oversee several congregations. In an elder-ruled church, the elders are ultimately responsible for making the decisions. But a congregational church is different. In a congregational church, it's the members, the gathered members, who have a final say under the authority of the Bible and under the authority of the Lord Jesus on what takes place in the church. It doesn't mean we vote on every decision. It means that if someone were to show up and ask, hey, who's responsible in this room to make sure that this church operates in in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, then we would have to go like this. It's all of us, right? Every single one of us, and especially us as, as members as a whole gathered together, are responsible to obey the Lord. And that leads us to our second and most important question. Is it biblical? Is it biblical? Does the Bible teach that one type of church government is the right one? I believe it does, and so I just want to take a a look at a number of different passages uh, this morning that I believe show that this is the case. First of all, let's look at the teachings of Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 18. Uh, Here in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus is teaching his disciples, and, and you can turn there if you want, but I am going to put some of these verses up on the screen because I know that if I ask you to turn to different passages throughout the sermon, I look out and I see people go... (laughs) So I'm trying to help you out a little bit. But here in Matthew chapter 18, in the context, Jesus is teaching his disciples about the way that he actually relates to his people. He shares, for example, that famous story in which a shepherd has a hundred sheep and loses one sheep. Now, what does a man do in Jesus' story? He leaves the 99 there and he goes after the one. So what Jesus is illustrating is that each individual member of the flock is infinitely valuable to him. 
And it's in the context of this care for his flock that Jesus explains to his disciples how they're, the, how they're to handle sin in the church. One member is sinning. You've got to make sure that you handle that sheep in a way that's healthy for the church and for that individual as a whole. I care about each individual. And so he wants each member to be restored when they go astray. And he says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And immediately there's a clue about how Jesus wants his church to function. When there is a problem in the church, who is the first person that should address it? A brother, a Christian, uh, any Christian. There isn't a spiritual police force in the church. All the members share equal responsibility for addressing serious sin. That's an important clue. But then Jesus goes on. He says, if he does not listen... Take one or two others with you, and he cites the Old Testament practice of establishing testimony on the basis of two or three witnesses. This is sort of a due process meant to protect anyone who might be accused falsely. Before blabbing it about to everybody, you should try to keep the matter as privately as possible. And then he says that if the brother who has sinned refuses to listen to that small group, then what do you do? You kick him out of the church, right? Is that what it says? No, you, you have a trial before the elders. Is that what it says? No. Uh, you, you refer to the matter to some kind of clerical court. No. When the stakes are at their highest, when a brother is so steeped in, in high-handed, habitual sin that you can't just overlook it and forgive it and move on with your day, when he refuses to repent but continues to embrace an immoral lifestyle after multiple people have pleaded with him to turn back, who is the authoritative entity who is responsible to, to address the issue? What does Jesus say? Tell it to the who? Tell it to the church. Now, in case you're unsure, the word church is a very common word in the Bible. When ancient people uh, read about uh, the children of Israel in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, just a, a quick aside, uh, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and Aramaic, but a lot of people didn't speak Hebrew or Aramaic. And so early on, before Jesus was born, they got together and they translated it into a more common language, the language of Greek. And so when they were reading their Greek translation of the Old Testament, and they were reading about the nation of Israel, often they would come across this word, ecclesia, church. It's the same word as is referred to as a church in the New Testament. Sometimes the Hebrew word is translated congregation in your English Bible. Uh, but the Greek word is no different from the word translated church here in Matthew chapter 18. Why is that? Why is it that Jesus talks about the church here in Matthew 18 and that when you would read your Greek Old Testament, you would read about an ecclesia, the same word, in, when, when referring to the children of Israel. Why is that? It's because in common Greek, uh, in, in antiquity, an authoritative assembly of citizens gathered for the purpose of exercising that authority was always referred to as an ecclesia. In fact, even in secular context, that was the word that was used. When Paul was in the city of Ephesus and the Ephesian citizens were gathered together to decide what to do with them, uh, the word that Luke uses in the book of Acts is that same word to refer to sort of a, a citizen's meeting, uh, a town hall meeting. It's that word, ecclesia. And in Matthew 18, it's the ecclesia, it's the church, it's the gathered local assembly of believers who serves as the final court of appeal in cases of church discipline. Not the elders, not the church council, not the hierarchy of overseers, 
not a synod, the gathered members of the local church. And we could keep reading here in Matthew 18 and find that this very idea is reinforced in the rest of the passage, but for the sake of time, uh, let me move on to another example in Acts chapter 15. Uh, Acts 15, a dispute has arisen among the believers throughout the ancient world about the gospel of, of Jesus. And the apostles have gathered the Jerusalem church together in order to settle the dispute. Now, there's this whole discussion in and of itself about that particular issue. But for our purposes, look at how it gets resolved in Acts chapter 15. They start to write a letter. They explain the gospel to their brothers in a nearby city. And in order to ensure that all the other churches knew the true gospel, they appointed leaders to travel to these other local churches in order to teach these things. But the question I have for you is, who is it that chooses these leaders in the Jerusalem church? Notice verse 22. It seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men and to send them to do these things. In other words, the whole ecclesia, the assembled believers in Jerusalem, is exercising authority to choose leaders. So this is in keeping with the previous passage in the book of Acts when the church selected deacons in Acts chapter 6. The apostles didn't choose the deacons for themselves. They asked the church to choose. The ecclesia, the gathered membership, had the final responsibility to choose. They summoned the full number of the disciples for this very purpose. So if you're keeping track, these are two of the most important decisions in the local church. Handling who is in and who is out, handling matters of discipline, and choosing leaders. And we have clear examples in the New Testament that it is the congregation who makes these decisions. Now, if these examples aren't enough for you, I'll mention just one more, the communication of the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. Skipper already read an example of this when he looked at, we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and you guys were sitting there thinking, what is he going to talk about today? This is a really spicy passage. And I do acknowledge that this passage flies in the face of our modern sensibilities. I mean, it's offensive to us. The idea that someone's lifestyle choices, someone's private affections, someone's lifestyle choices and sexuality would be a matter of church discipline is offensive to most Americans. But guess what? It's obviously offensive to ancient people living in Corinth, too. In fact, the Corinthian church was actually proud of the fact that they were so inclusive of this person. They embraced the Corinthian creed that love is love. And they allowed a man to continue as part of their church, even though he was openly living in a relationship with his own stepmother. Paul, of course, was having none of it, and so he gives some clear instruction in verse 4. He says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. What does that mean? It means simply that the Corinthian church, as a gathered authoritative assembly, was responsible to remove him from the watch care of the church, and withdraw their recognition of him as a brother in Christ. That's what that means. So they're, treat, they're to treat him as an unbeliever because, by all indications, that's what he was. Now, as an aside, let me just point out that the reason for this is not what you think. It wasn't to be unkind. It wasn't to be mean. It wasn't because they were better than he was. The whole point is expressed in verse 5. What does he say? That his 
spirit may be saved. So Paul's desire is that this man repent and return to Christ, and there's a lot more that can be said, but to focus on the topic of church government. Who's responsible to obey the Lord in this way? Is it the elders? Is it the synod? Is it the bishop? I mean, who is it? Is it the pastor? No, it's the whole church. He says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus. And in the very next chapter, uh, Paul explains to the Corinthians uh, that they themselves were members of this authoritative body that would one day judge angels. In another letter to the same church, he talks about a totally different case of church discipline in which the majority of believers had actually acted to exercise discipline toward a man who was causing division in the church and had since repented. And so Paul's able to encourage them and say, hey, church, you did what was right. You exercised your authority. Now go ahead and welcome this man back. See, what these passages show is that congregation, the congregation, the ecclesia, the assembled local gathering of church members, carried the ultimate earthly authority and responsibility in the church. They held the keys, you might say. They were responsible to decide who was in and who was out. And they chose their leaders and exercised discipline. And if the congregation was responsible in these matters, how much more so in lesser matters? So is congregationalism biblical? Yes, I believe it is. Thirdly, is it practical? Now, if I can just be candid for a moment, I'm aware that congregational government can introduce constraints into the church that sometimes cause a little bit of pain, and maybe you've experienced these things. Uh, For example, church leaders who aren't convinced by the biblical examples I cited a moment ago often claim that congregationalism is inefficient, that it doesn't work like a well-oiled machine. Every time you have to make a big decision, you've got to get everybody's say-so. That just is a huge headache. Why would we want to do that? And it's true that in the short term, a top-down approach to church leadership is much more efficient. You can get many more things done much more quickly if you just have a few people or one person making all the decisions. If I could make more decisions unilaterally as the pastor or if the elders had the final say, it would take much less time to reach consensus and move forward. Uh, Sometimes it feels like we're in this wagon train moving along at a snail's pace as a church, doesn't it? But in the long run, has it really been the case that a move away from congregationalism will lead to greater ministry effectiveness? Clearly not. Consider the long-term, the culture-wide effects of a more efficient model of church in the United States. You say, you know, I just wish the elders would take care of it, I wish the staff would take care of it, and I'll just kind of support whatever you decide. In the long run, that is going to have some deleterious effects. See, for about a generation, large churches have been getting larger. The percentage of professing believers who belong to a megachurch, a a church with thousands of members, has increased exponentially in my lifetime. And many of these have been able to grow so large, in part, in some cases, because they've gone to a different way of structuring the way that the church operates. Obviously, not all of them have done this, but many of them have done this. And these megachurches are more efficient at completing ministry tasks let's just be real, then their congregationalist counterparts. If the bylaws need to be changed, an executive team gets it done in a couple of weeks. Hiring decisions are made by one or two people. Programs are created or cut with the slightest of ease. But think about the impact this has had on our culture at large. Has it led to culture-wide revival in the United States? 
Is the gospel growing in influence or shrinking in influence in the United States? Are Christians growing in maturity or is biblical literacy on the wane? Are Christians more willing to sacrifice their time and their talents and their treasure than they were 60 or 70 years ago or less? Now, I'm not trying to throw large churches under the bus. There are plenty of wonderful large churches. So please don't misunderstand. Many of them labor to remain faithful to the Bible's teaching on this topic. But what I mean to say is that when we minimize the teachings of the Bible in order to maximize short-term success, they're going to be unintended and very harmful long-term consequences. Con congregationalism, it may feel at times like it's exhausting, but it's very practical. Uh, other people have objected to congregational government because of all the ways that it's been abused. And I'm sure you sympathize. I imagine this resonates with a lot of you. It does me as well. If you've belonged to a Baptist church for a long time, I imagine you've had at least one or two bad business meetings. But is the problem congregationalism or is it something else? Uh, for example, many congregational churches are kind of shot through with this uh, militant, extremely separatistic spirit. Uh, their identity is built on all the ways which they feel superior to other churches. But what happens in a church like that is that eventually you run out of enemies out there to lob grenades at, and then who's left? All of us together. And we start to point our weapons at one another, and the church begins to like an overactive immune system, attack the body itself. Uh, the church's discernment mechanisms follow the first half of 1 Thessalonians 5.21, test everything, but then they neglect the second half. Hold fast to what is good. And so the church, like a snake swallowing its own tail, eats itself alive, and believers become the casualties of an internal war that can ravage any type of church, whether they're a congregational church or not. Other churches, they've, they've been kind of embracing a, a false gospel, easy believism or easy prayerism, depending on what you want to call it. Uh, their gospel is nothing more than a, a meaningless incantation, and therefore many of the members of the church do not belong to Christ. And when the unregenerate exercise authority and power in an environment designed for the redeemed, all manner of things can happen. And there are still more possible abuses, dictatorial populist pastors who know how to manipulate the masses. Deacon boards running amok. I'm sure you know what I mean. Uh, but are these symptoms of a congregational church, or are they just lesions that can kind of latch on to any type of church at all? On the, on the contrary, when a congregation treasures the gospel and is willing to fulfill its responsibilities to promote the church's doctrine and discipline, when the elders fulfill their scriptural responsibility to teach the word of God and not the traditions of men, when we are eager to forgive and walk together in Christian love, when we speak truth with our neighbor, when our members' meetings are not business meetings, but as a friend of mine likes to call them, prayer meetings with an agenda. When we outdo one another in showing honor, a congregationally governed church is a beacon of gospel light to the surrounding community far brighter than it would be if the church gave away its authority to the elders or to the bishop or to the synod. See, in a congregational church, each member is motivated to exercise his gifts to learn the implications of the gospel and the contents of the word of God. 
to protect the body of Christ from wolves, to cultivate and value godly and gifted leaders. Congregationalism, in which the gathered members of the church take their place as the direct reports of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is biblical, and it is practical, and that leads us to our final question. And I know I'm kind of rushing through this, but bear with me. And that question is, so what? Who cares? (laughs) Why are we talking about this today? And I know I've been a lot more instructional today than I normally would be, and I appreciate you bearing with me in this. But I hope that you can see that this all has immediate, direct application to each of us today. If you think about it in terms of the whole Bible, congregationalism is actually an outflow of what God has been doing in the world since day one. What's he been doing? He's been calling a redeemed humanity image bearers to be his vice regents in the world, to represent him in the world, to care for creation and to cultivate a world devoted to the glory of God. What a privilege not just to live in fellowship with God, but to actually wield the authority of God and to, to, care, for the, to, to care for the world in the way that God has created us to do so. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, maybe you think words like power and authority are actually bad words. Like you've never known anyone to have power or to wield authority and do good things with it. After all, so many wicked men have exercised their so-called authority and power in a way that caused others to suffer. And if that's you, I would just invite you to do what many other people have done. Like, spend time with these people. See the way that they work. Take it seriously. Spend a lot of time with them. Watch them. See the way that they really live. Observe how decisions are made. Look at how they treat each other. And I think what you'll find is two things. First of all, you're going to see all the imperfections. And they're, they're there. Absolutely. As one evangelist used to say, the gospel light attracts all sorts of strange bugs. But when you start to look a little bit deeper, you'll find that these people are people who are changing for real. The message of Christ is sinking deeper into their souls. They're learning what it means that they've been forgiven. And because of the forgiveness that God has offered them in Christ, then they can look at someone who's hurt them even deeply and forgive. The great generosity of Jesus toward them is leading them to generously reach deep into their own pockets and give toward the work of God. Many are giving themselves to the weak and to the sick and to the elderly and the marginalized and the forgotten. They're investing in orphans and widows. They're serving others when nobody is looking. You'll see the way they spend their time, how they're abandoning the American dream of comfort and leisure and me time. (laughs) And they're actually giving up their precious weekends in order to serve others. And what I want to say to you is that these people, just average, everyday people from all walks of life that God the Holy Spirit is giving the authority and the responsibility to direct the course of the most transformative institution in the world, the the church. Do you see the wisdom in that? Can you see how good, how wise God has been to invite every believer to participate in the governance of his church? Can you see how this prevents the powerful from dominating the weak? how it lifts up the lowly, how it balances out the weaknesses of any one individual, how it protects the church from the failings of its leaders. 
And if God is this wise and this caring, can't you see why I would want to invite you to believe in him? To like learn that Jesus died for your sin and to, 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 to give yourself and your life to the God who has created this wonderful family. Would you believe in him today? But what about us, Indian Creek? Who is the primary steward of this church? Who is ultimately responsible for Indian Creek? Is it me? Is it the elders or the deacons or the small group leaders? No, it's you. It's all of you. It's all of us, right? Not because we earned the right. Not because we've been here for a certain amount of time. Not because we've put in a certain amount of time serving. Not because we hold a title or have a certain level of education. Not because of any reason except Jesus died for our sins and welcomed us into his family. That is what gives us the authority in the local church and the responsibility to carry out his will. None of us is a spectator. In a moment here, we're going to be celebrating the Lord's table together as a symbol of our union in Christ uh, as a, a moment where we faithfully look forward to the time when God will welcome us around his own table in the heavenly kingdom. And I just want you to know, th- these tables up here, do you see them? These are not tables for the guests so much as they are, they're like the faculty and staff lunchroom, okay? This is where, this is where God's people, exercising God's authority, gather for a meal, And so I hope and trust that you're eager to take your honored place as God's image bearer and join your ecclesia to represent him in the world and in the local church today. As we get ready to to partake of the Lord's table, would you just bow with me now in prayer for a moment? Uh, Father, I just want to thank you for your church and for the way that you don't entrust it to uh, just one or two people. You entrust it to all of your people, uh, that you ask And you empower every Christian to bear responsibility in the church. Lord, I pray that you would cause each one of us to walk in this glorious responsibility and to to take ownership of what you've given us in Christ. And Father, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. In a moment, we're... uh,